Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll and home of the uh, mostly always funny Duff McKagan joke of the week. Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan calling you. Hey, man, uh, I know, like, I don't know myself, this COVID thing, I've gained about, you know, 15 pounds just like hanging out, not getting outside, whatever. But I got a new diet. It's uh, you wear bread on your head. It's a great diet. Yeah, it's a loaf. Hat diet. Thank you very much. Goodbye. <laughs> uh, what do you say about that one? A loaf hat diet. Um, yeah, that's pretty good, actually. <laughs> Duff's delivery always makes me laugh. Uh, thank you, Duff, for delivering like clockwork every Friday. And you know who else delivers like clockwork every week? The Winnipeggers. New episodes drop Thursday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern on my Facebook page and YouTube channel. This week, Ribo, Dave, and I talk bad TV spinoffs, and there are some truly awful ones that come out of some classic hit sitcoms like MASH, Full House, Three's Company, Cheers. See how many you remember with the Winnipeggers, and here are ridiculous uh, rundowns of all of them. Check it out now on my Facebook page and YouTube channel. And next week is the return of the Idiot Olympics as the Winnipeggers goes live on Thursday night. I think we'll go probably about 8 p.m., Eastern on Thursday, live Winnipeggers returns the Idiot Olympics part two. So check that out as well. Over a quarter of a million views of the Winnipeggers show since we started. So thanks to all of you who have been checking it out. If you haven't seen it yet, go watch it. It's a lot of fun. It's about 30 minutes long every week. So we uh, get in, get some laughs and get out. So go check it out now. All right. And also check out Stallone. Frank, that is. And that's the title of his new documentary about his life and career. Stallone, Frank, that is, was directed by Derek Wayne Johnson. Available now on iTunes and video on demand. Go check it out after you listen to this episode. Really good documentary. Features a whole slew of celebrity guests, including Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Duff McKagan is on it. All telling stories about Frank. And you hear some of those stories coming up. Frank talks about getting the part in Rocky where he was... uh, singing on the street corner there, landing songs on the Staying Alive soundtrack, including his biggest hit, Far From Over, boxing Geraldo Rivera in a celebrity match, and competing on Hulk Hogan's Celebrity Wrestling Championship show as well. Frank was in a band with John Oates before Hall and Oates formed. He co-starred in a movie with Academy Award winner Martin Landau. He's been in something like 75 movies and TV shows in his lifetime. He's got three platinum albums, a Golden Globe nomination, and a Grammy nomination, And yet people still call him Rocky's brother. We talk about that as well. What an interesting guy. What a fun interview. Frank Stallone coming up right now on Talk is Jericho. Let's just jump right in with that, Frank. How has that been for you when you've been basically playing shows and been on the road for the last 45 odd years? Yeah. I mean, you must really miss being on stage and playing. Well, I, I do because, I mean, I actually enjoy playing live more than I do, you know, recording. I mean, I record a lot, but there's something about, you know, oh, yeah. you get the same emotion singing into a mic, into a glass mirror, opposed to like a live audience. It's, just, it's like, I can't imagine you guys like doing a smackdown yeah. and there's no audience. I mean, because you guys feed off the audience. Well, that's part of being a, a live performer. And, and we did have to wrestle with no people for about six months. And now we have limited crowds. And the first time we had, I don't know, 500 people in a 6,000-seat venue, it felt like Madison Square Garden. It was just like, there's people are here. How big were those huge, big smackdowns like in the 80s with Hulk and all? 
those were huge, right? Those were like 50,000 people, right? Well, but they, they can be. You know, it's like there's big shows like that, and then there's smaller shows. But the bottom line is, and you know this, whether you're playing in front of 50,000 people or, or 50 people, the energy is is everything. You got to do your show. You know, I've, I've played because of snowstorms or whatever, things like that. All of a sudden, the promoter comes back, frankly, at the place, there's like 10 people. I said, well, I'm going to do the show because... 10 people weathered a horrible storm to come see my sorry ass. So I'm going <laughs> on stage and I'm going to do my show. And I've just always been like that because you know what? Sometimes they're your greatest shows. You know what? Yes. I, I have been, you know, I used to box all the time, but my hands were all screwed up. So now I bought Bob the punching bag. You know, Bob, that's like the figure. Yeah, yeah. wear his ass out for the next few weeks because <laughs> I don't hurt my hands. And I can get all my frustration out. I can paint a face on it. I can paint like my agent and everything like that. I just can't hit those heavy bags. I tell you, man, these bags they make now so heavy. At the end of the day, it's like Jesus, you know. Well, it's interesting because because one of the, one of the things I think when we're talking about the lockdown, we haven't been able to do live shows, but other things have come up, and one of them is is this documentary of yours yeah. that's just come out. Uh, Stallone, Frank, that is. And listen, I mean, obviously, I've followed a lot of the stuff that you've done, but watching this documentary, it's it's really well done, and it really paints this great picture of a very talented guy being yourself, but kind of always tagged with one of the most famous last names ever. It's not like your your brother is Sylvester Jones. I mean, Stallone no. is a brand. Stallone, yeah, right? It's not like Sylvester the Footy Cat. You know, what I mean, it's like <laughs> that's right. that. Yeah, I know it is, and. And, and I think that's what the documentary talks about, Chris, perseverance. I mean, let's face it, even in your field, no one starts at the top. I right. mean, so you probably did those things for 200 people, like in a VFW or some like stupid. Of course. Yeah. Well, that's how I started music, playing. I think my first gig was on our like, next door neighbor's lawn for like $5, five dollars for three guys with a fortune back then. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, so I mean, so it's a progressive road, but I mean, I believe it was a, a divine intervention on my part because there's no one, it's not like I came from a real talented family. My mm -hmm. father was a hairdresser, you know, and, right. not, and not a good one at that, but I'm just saying so. And my mother was just out there, you know, she was who she was, but the thing was, it, it's it's so unlikely that my brother and I, I mean, more him than me, because he started a little later than I did. Mm -hmm. I mean, we thought he was going to end up like in Sing Sing or something like that. You know, <laughs> he was always getting, in, always getting in fights and trouble. He was a horrible student. So you would never think this guy's going to be like an American icon. Mm -hmm. But it's but so there's something there. So I guess the, the good man upstairs is looking down on us because it kind of, you know, it kind of gets you through a lot of stuff. Everyone has their niche, whether it be athletics, whether it be, you know, singing, writing. So I just found my niche really early. But it's it's it, look, it's a long road. I tell all these kids if they want to listen, I said, if you better have a thick skin, because if you think you're just going to walk in and make it happen, it's not going to happen like that. So let's talk about the documentary. How did it get made and kind of how did the concept of it uh, getting done? How was it pitched to you and all that sort of thing? Well, it was pitched to me by this young filmmaker, Derek Wayne Johnson. He had just came up to me one day, met him at a party, and he had done a movie on John Appleton who directed uh, Rocky, one right. of Rocky, called King of the Underdogs, which I thought was a really well, well done movie. So after a while, one day he said, hey, let's have lunch together. And I said, all right. 
And he said, we want to do a documentary. We find your life is interesting. I go, well, I'm happy someone does. So, <laughs> you know, and then we, we, we took it from there. And, and I said, well, the way I can help is just, you know, I just know a lot of people I've known over the many years, guys I've worked with, record people, whatever. And uh, all of a sudden, they just kind of fell in line. I mean, I didn't think my brother would do it because, you know, mm. he doesn't do that stuff. And then when he said that I'm everywhere as much as talented as he is and what he tries to do, that was news to me because he's never said that to me. <laughs> Why did he say that to me 35 years ago? It <laughs> my ego a little bit, you know. But, you know, and that and all the wonderful actors, uh, you know, Danny Aiello, you know, God rest my soul, my mother. But it was just one of those things. And it just – and I was not at any of the interviews because I didn't want to be. I wanted to, mm. I wanted to think, well, we think Frank is a smacked ass. We hated him. Good. Put it in. Yeah. <laughs> Diversity, right? <laughs> we did, so we didn't have like a contract saying you, know, you can only say nice things about Frank. Right. No, it was a, like let her rip. And I was just, I was, listen, when I went to see the premiere, eh, I was, as surprised as anybody because I hadn't, I didn't know what the hell they were going to say. Well, and you and you had such. I mean, Arnold is great in it. You may have Schwarzenegger talking about you and working out with you. The classic Arnold. <laughs> get, get the pimp. Get the pimp. Yeah, no, Arnold is great. What's your relationship with him? Well, I've known Arnold a long since seventies. You know, I've known mm -hmm. Arnold a long time because uh, I knew. His wife Maria Shriver from Philadelphia. She was a newscaster. Oh, gotcha. And we were from there, and then I, I met him, and and we both have the exact same birthday, July thirtieth. So hmm. there we go. There, and one of your guys in Canada, Paul Anka. But we, we'll just stay with Arnold. No, it's a little cool. <laughs> and then of course a, a good friend of mine, Duff McKagan, just randomly shows up. Duff is a great guy, you know. What I mean, and he's got a great story himself. I mean, when mm -hmm. he came back from you know the the addiction and all, and he's a lovely person. You know? Yeah, he's a great guy. Yeah, Richie Sambora from Bon Jovi I've known since he was a teenager. I mean, I knew him when he was a kid, when he you know, was living with his parents. He used to play in a band with you. Yeah, well, he would sit in once in a while. He was in another band, but, you know, it was a kind of – that was in New Jersey. It was kind of a tight-knit, like, kind of community. Like, say one guy would have a hangover. Hey, can you come in and play bass tonight? Yeah, okay, sure, whatever. Right, 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 right. Like that, or, you know. And uh, – that's why I knew him. And, of course, John Oates, I knew from 1970 when we were in a group together. No, he said I was wearing makeup, like pancake makeup. It really wasn't. What it was was Clearasil because I had zits. So I had it on my face, so I looked like a kabuki doll. But that's what it was. It wasn't pancake makeup. Well, tell, tell me, because you come from Philadelphia, and obviously that's where Hall & Oates is from, the kind of the whole Philly soul sound, that sort yeah, of thing. Because yeah. I think one thing that pointed out in the documentary is that, like you mentioned earlier, you kind of started your path into show business before your brother did yeah. and started kind of playing the, 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 the bars and doing that circuit and all that sort of thing. But talk about that in those early days. The How did you hook up with, with, with Oates and, and kind of how did your career begin at that time? Well, you know, I started, uh, I, I turned professional in 65, but I was singing way before that. That was like the doo-wop stuff, a la what you see in Rocky One, standing on the corner, that kind of stuff. And I wasn't a juvenile delinquent. I just had a high voice, so they let me sing with one. <laughs> and uh, so, and then one thing, and then when the Beatles hit, that was it. You know, that was over for us. I said, okay, doesn't get any better than this. So, mm -hmm. Beatles, and then we, uh, you know, we were kind of not really good musicians. We were kind of learning on the go. 
And then we started a little band, The American Tragedy, which we talk about in, in the thing. And then I started a group called Valentine's. So that group broke up and I got, oh, Christ. So I played a solo for a while. And I'm only 19 years old at that point. So then uh, late 69, early 70, I, we got the, some of the guys together from the original Valentine and we needed a lead guitar player. So John Oates, bass player knew John Oates. He came in. He was a wonderful guy. You know, really, really, still a nice guy. You know, mm-hmm. and he was very talented, and we stayed together for a while. And as he says in the documentary, you know, he he did what all guys did. I mean, he was the one guy who graduated college. We barely got out of high school, so he was like a smart guy in the group. We were like the idiots, right? So he goes, "Okay, I'm going to backpack through Europe." I said, "Well, there goes the group." But that was the logical thing in those days. That's right. What we did hey, man. I'm going to go and stay in youth hostiles and pick up chicks in Amsterdam. Hello. So we're stuck in Philadelphia. That group broke up. And then then I was a solo act for quite a few years, maybe three about three or some years, you know, and uh, just kind of a vagabond, eh? you know, like a Gordon Lightfoot type character, but with no money, just traveling around, you know, and just being kind of a balladeer. And then uh, we put the other group together, Valentine Three, and that was the group that stayed together the longest, and that was the group that was in Rocky. It's one of those things where I never noticed before that you were the guy standing at the street corner at the very beginning. Now, meanwhile, as you're going through kind of building your name in music, what's going on with with, with Sly at the time, acting wise? Like, how does how do you guys both converge with Rocky? Well, his career was kind of going nowhere. Actually, my career was kind of on a better trajectory than his. Yeah, you no, know, he'd done some movies. He, I his it's one of the worst movies, but I think it's one of the greatest movies ever did called Death Race 2000. It's classic. Yeah, yeah. so bad that it's cool as hell, you know what I mean? Right. I mean, I've done like 77 movies, and I've stayed at 70. You suck. But now they're becoming cult classics because people, <laughs> people are in the bad movies now. I said, okay. <laughs> so we did that, and then uh, all of a sudden, our band was looking for a deal at RCA Records, and he, you know, his career was not doing good at all. I mean, he'd done, you know, Police Story, Kojak, things like that. But he wasn't he wasn't really the type they were looking for in Hollywood. You know, he was kind of like bulky, you know, kind of mumbling. Yeah. yeah, mumbling. You know, and so they were looking more for the Ryan O'Neill kind of looking type guy. So all of a sudden he goes, hey, I wrote this book, this movie about boxing, and he wanted to, he wanted to know if I'd do a song. And I had no idea what the hell am I going to write about in a boxing movie. You know, I'm trying to, I'm dying over here. So I go out there. So make a long story short, we, uh, he comes to Philadelphia. I never thought the movie was going to happen, but he ends up shows up in Philadelphia. He goes, you got that song? I go, uh, yeah, okay, I got that song. And he goes, but the band doesn't want to be in the movie. And I go, and he says, what do you mean I want to be I said, because we're making 140 bucks that night for the whole band. Shows you how much we suck. <laughs> Five guys with 140 bucks take $28 off the top for our managers. So we're not left with too much split five ways. So obviously our dating life was not good. Okay. Right. So, <laughs> so he goes, so he was getting upset. And then he came back. He goes, we'll give you 140. I said, we're making 140. He goes, each. We go, what? Mm. Whoa. That's like a month. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it shows you. I mean, when you think about it, 1970. That was like what we'd make in maybe three weeks or a month. I mean, so, I mean, my apartment was $80 a month, you know? So, I mean, if we made, 
if we made a hundred dollars a week, so you figure five nights a week, 168 minutes of music a night, and you're taking home like twenty dollars. I mean, right. It's not a, a career builder, you know. So we did the movie and then just forgot about it, and then the rest is history. It just, it just people fell in love with this thing. Well, and that's the funny thing is because because he wrote this, your brother wrote the script for it, yeah. and then it's cool to put you in the movie with with the song "Take You Back," which of course you guys are the doo-wop guys gathered around the the barrel filled with fire on the street corner and that sort of thing. But did anybody? know the potential of this film or was it just kind of a low budget thing or was it a major studio movie from the start it was a low budget movie actually made for drive-ins tell you the truth i mm. mean they thought they'd get their money back i saw some of the the what they called in those days the rushes the dailies and i thought it was pretty special it had it definitely had that on the waterfront type vibe right and I thought it was really great but i always thought my brother was a really good writer too so mm -hmm. i thought it was great and then, man, it knocked me out when all of a sudden it just became, you know what it was, Chris? It was like the little train that could. It was like this movie that came out of nowhere. No, only known actor in it really is Burgess Meredith. Right. As the Penguin. I mean, from, you know, that, yeah. this guy's one of the great actors. He's known as the Penguin and Batman. Okay. That's right. So, and, and all of a sudden people just fell in love with this movie. They just fell in love with this movie. And, and like I said, the rest was history. It was just went on. It had its own had its own amazing life, but then that also kind of helps you because now your career gets a big boost with 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 take you back and and you did a kind of a, a more rock arrangement of it, and now suddenly your career is, is is building as well. Until Rocky was over, then our career like nosedived. That's what happened because we were only listen, we were on these big shows. We were naive, we're teenagers. We were living in a you know Trenton, New Jersey. It's not like you know. We, we didn't have any mentors or anything like that. So all of a sudden, when the Rocky thing kind of faded after like well, close to a year, then all of a sudden, everything stopped. The record deal went down the toilet. No more TV shots, nothing. So the group broke up, as you see in the documentary. Right. And I kind of went out on my own. It was kind of, it was you know, when you're younger like that, you're kind of bulletproof because you have no sense of mortality. You know what I mean? So, but I mean, I went from playing big places, you know, wow, Rocky, Hollywood, to back to playing the ground round for $30 a night while people were like eating. Like, so it had like sawdust in the floor with peanut barrels. You know what I mean? So I went from that. So like in my own town, I was like a total like failure. They go, oh, man, right. what a loser. I go, well, I agree with you on that one. So. And then my brother said, well, why don't you just get the hell out of there? What are you doing there? I mean, you've exhausted everything there. Why make it worse? Try something new. So I got in my car and I drove to California and I've been here ever since. And now I want to get the hell out. So there <laughs> there's an interesting thing, though, Frank, that I, that I really, um, really kind of took to when you were playing to take you back and you're doing all these gigs and you're advertised uh, Rocky's brother. Yeah, yeah. Come see Rocky's brother play his big hit from Rocky. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, because because, and I'll tell you why why it relates to me in a second. Well, because it was it's, it's nothing that I wanted. Because we were a band, we were like all, you know, we were like good friends and stuff. So it's not like something I wanted. But these, uh, you know, the powers that be said, "Oh, this will help bring in people," and it did. But it kind of starts separating the group 
uh, from each other, and it was it was kind of a drag. And uh, I think that was probably one of the factors. But I I think the group had been together like almost eight years, and probably you know. But it, it's kind of embarrassing too, though, because it, it it makes it almost like you're a novelty. Yeah, right? like, exactly, a novelty act for sure. Totally makes it like to feel like a novelty act because I. I've been playing in a band for for years, and it's oh, we're over it now. But for the longest time, I mean, now we have you know five top thirty hits and all that sort of thing. But for the longest time, it'd be Chris Jericho of WWE and Fozzy or Chris Jericho the Wrestlers Band, and it's like there's nothing worse for an artist than being pigeonholed as like oh it's the novelty act, and it's just like oh it was so embarrassing. I'd like get that off the poster get rid of it yeah i hate it but did it help the band see i don't know if it helped me no it didn't help i i think it, it hinders you as much as it as it might help you because i think people don't take it seriously you know and you probably had the same thing oh it's rocky's brother as if suddenly just because your brother's famous now you're just jumping into the you know trying to do a cash grab not realizing you've spent 20 years building up your craft so they thought you were probably going to come on stage and get someone in a full nelson or yes something. You're exactly right. Like a kiss show. <laughs> yeah. And they probably thought you were going to come on stage with boxing gloves and do a boxing routine. Oh, as yeah. oh no. I mean, they thought I was going to probably come out full camo with an M60 and like <laughs> the audience or something like that, you know. But you're right. And, and you know, but it all, it you know, it kind of, I think why the documentary is doing well and why it relates, because on different levels, people have stuff like, Say the local guy, his brother was the star in football, everything. He's the younger brother. Right. And he's getting that. I got that military school, but the difference was with me. I got my ass kicked because of my brother because he was such a delinquent. So gotcha. when I went there, there were guys that was payback time, and I was like the human receptacle in that. You know what I mean? <laughs> I was like, yes, yeah, so you go, hey, you, uh, my brother's name was Mike then. He didn't like Sylvester. She probably goes, hey, you Mike Stallone's little brother? Go, yeah. Pow! Oh, oh. <laughs> I stole my locker. You know, I mean, so we <laughs> So I paid the price on that one, and I also paid the price when Rocky came out because I was boxing in the amateurs, and now all these guys were friends just wanted to kick my ass. Right? Oh, yeah, man, we'll kick Rocky's brother's ass. I go, whoa, wait a second, brother. I thought we were friends. He goes, nah, I need it. <laughs> so they wanted to get, they, they could tell their girlfriends, yeah, I kick Rocky's brother's ass. Yeah. Here's here's the best part. Rocky's brother. Rocky's not even a guy. It's a I know, character. It's like a person, like, hey, man, I just kicked the Grinch's brother's ass. Or like <laughs> Frankenstein's, you know, little brother. I mean, I know. It's not even a real person. I mean, people come up to you and go, hey, man, you Rambo's brother? I go, oh, God. And, and sometimes, you know, it, it hits you on a day when you've, like, had it. Um, just because maybe other things coming in your universe. Yeah. Like, and loved you in Rocky's brother's movie. I go, thank you very much. <laughs> and then I realized maybe they're just brain dead. You know, maybe, yeah. just, you know, some people are, are really stupid. And most fans, well, okay, some people are not stupid. They're ignorant. Yes. You wouldn't go up to a regular person and stick like something in their face while they're having dinner. And there's some people that are just so nervous and shy, they might say stupid stuff. Yes. I agree with you there, Frank. I, I've noticed over the years that some people are just clueless and kind of rude. Like, would you ever go up to a stranger and slap, hey, slap you on the back? It's like, oh. but most actually <laughs> not a professional wrestler. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I think a lot of people are just nervous, so they'll say something that maybe doesn't make sense or, or is out of play. But, but like you said, you got to really be 
uh, cognizant of that because it's easy to just snap at somebody. You never want to do that. And you know, Chris, I had a great wrestling career on Hulk Hogan's Celebrity Champion. Oh, Christ, man. All right, Frank, we're talking about you doing Hulk Hogan's Celebrity Championship Wrestling. Tell us more about that. Look, I, I go back to wrestling different era, like Bobo Brazil and yeah. Kowalski and guys like that, Hans and Moxman, Eric, you know, the, Prince Von Eric. So the modern stuff was great, but I wasn't like really clued into it. But all these celebrities that were into it were like really into the modern like wrestling, you know, the Hulkster and all that stuff like that. And I knew I wasn't going to take those when, like, when what's that called when you have to land with your hands on your back? Take, taking a bump. Yeah, forget. There was no yeah. bump because all of a sudden my neck and back would go, oh. <laughs> but the money was great. The money was great. I got to tell you. So I went on and I knew Terry, you know, I knew Hulk. And Hulk was a good guy, you know. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, so we were set with nasty knobs. And he looks like a fat guy until they like airplanes spin you out of the ring, you know? Right, right. So, he was there and Beefcake, Brutus, and they were like our coaches, really nice guys. But I think I should have kind of understood it because when Sly did Paradise Alley with all the wrestling in that movie with Terry mm-hmm. Funk and guys, they don't look like like Mick Foley. They don't look like they can move until they're on your ass. They're faster than you think. Right. And they're quick and they're strong and they can take tremendous amount of punishment. So my first thing is with Dennis Rodman. I'm looking at him across the ring. He's like kind of skinny. I said, I'm just going to knock this fool out. As he picked me up and threw me like a dart into the turnbuckle. And you know, really, my brother goes, Frank, he's one of the greatest rebounders in basketball history. You're a rock musician. He throws guys around there 300 pounds. And you just don't realize the ferocity of, of there's the amateur level and then there's the pro level. Right. And so what happened? I got thrown off the show. Because they were doing, you know, they were doing every day, they were doing like a different challenge. So I don't like heights, right? You know, so there's a thing is like about 25, 30 feet high and you jump into like a bag or like a trampoline or something. And the stunt guy's there and I'm there, God, no shit, got this, baby. There was a lot of girls down there and I'm wearing my leotards. I go, dude, I got this. (laughs) I get up there and I shit my pants. I get up there and go, because I have vertigo. And I start right. talking like this. I'm talking to the stunt guy, and he's there sitting there going, I said, has anyone ever gotten hurt here? He goes, ah, yeah, yeah, you can break your neck if you're not careful. I go, what? <laughs> and I just, it was like that movie with Mel Brooks, like high anxiety. <laughs> I, and I just walked out. I couldn't do it. And I got thrown off the show. He called me a jabroni. <laughs> jabroni. But, but here's the thing. Is I got paid in full, and as I'm walking out, these guys go, "You lucky son of a bitch," because they got their asses kicked. They had to stay. <laughs> I mean, it was on from screech, so yeah. they stayed on for a few weeks, and they got really banged up. And I was on for a week, and I walked away with all my money, so I was all right. <laughs> You're okay. I cut out for it, man. I mean, that's a special type of person, like as you know, I don't have to tell you that can do that because it's, you know, they think it's fake. I said, "Why don't you go there and find out?" Yeah, it might be staged, but break your nap in, in the meantime. A live, a live stunt show, if you will, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure you got some aches and pains yourself, right? Chris? Yeah, I mean, after 30 years, but you just get used to it after a while. You know, if, you, if you've never done it before, oh, no. I mean, I can, you know, it's just like handing somebody a guitar and say, play a solo. You're like, what do I do? I don't know what to do. Yeah. You know, you have to build up and practice, just like you mentioned, starting, yeah. out, you know, starting out slow. Another great part of the doc- documentary is kind of like the 
the the peak of of your recording career is how far from over became oh, a yeah. hit and how it was even you know kind of so talk about that because sly gets the job in directing and writing the sequel to saturday night fever well what happened was when i found out that he was directing of course i got went over to uh, the paramount lot and, and my crappy car and figured <laughs> and i felt my career was over at that point because i was 31 i was 32 and everything had just gone sideways so i figured well if i could get maybe a 15 second piece of music in the movie like that maybe 20 bars or something like that i could get some residuals because you know the first movie sold 56 million albums so wow yeah 26 million double albums and of course he told me there was not a chance for me i go thank you very much as i left the office i stole the script so i went home and said yeah you go over and write some stuff you know i said all right so i went over and started writing stuff and i was kind of after i read the script it kind of paralleled where i was because tony monero now wanted to be considered a credible, you know, like artist. He wanted to make it, you know what I mean? Yeah, as a dancer. That's where yeah. I was at. Yeah, but that's where I was at, man. I wanted to like, you know, I wanted to make my move, you know? So when I was writing all that stuff, it, I guess subconsciously it was going through. And Far From Over was the apex. That is totally autobiographical because mm. I am down, but I'm far from over, back in the race. Boom, you know, getting knocked down, get over, knocked down, get over, knocked down. So... The Bee Gees had had some kind of a disagreement and were not involved in the movie at that point. So now they're freaking out. Now you got the sequel to the biggest musical in history, and you got the, the one of the greatest groups ever. Now they're not going to be in the movie. Hmm. So they call Hall and Oates. <laughs> it all like kind of goes full circle <laughs> because they called Daryl and John for Rocky One. Oh wow! Yeah, so Daryl and I did a show live in Daryl Place. He goes. I don't know. We just like keep paralleling each other because every time we turn something down, it becomes real big for you. I go, hey, <laughs> I'll take it. You know what I mean? I said, I'll take it. So what happened was that so all of a sudden John heard my music and I guess he picked up the thing in there. You know, I guess he mm -hmm. just picked up where I was coming from. And the, and the, but I believe the music for me, it was very sincere. It wasn't like I was out just trying to, you know, of course, I wanted to be a success. I wanted, to, you know, I mean, I'd invested my whole life in this with with nothing to show for it. So this was the first time I really got a chance to to show my stuff. You know what I mean? So that's how how that happened. And then all of a sudden, I'll never forget. All of a sudden, they start adding my songs in the movie. Now it's three songs. Now it's four songs. Now it's five songs. Now it's nine songs. Hmm. And now everyone's getting pissed at me. Now when I come to office, like before, they're like rolling their eyes. Well, they're rolling their eyes. Every time I come in with new songs, oh, here he is again, <laughs> Rocky's brother. And all of a sudden, <laughs> when I started having hits, that tone changed real big. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So that, that whole vibe changed real big. But but so it was just, it was the greatest time of my life because it, it, it kind of all my dreams came to fruition. You know what I mean? It was like, oh, God. You're talking almost 20 years of mm -hmm. trenches. And, uh, you know, it's like being a contender for 20 years and never quite getting that shot. So I got the shot and it worked. And then it again went ass sideways because I just never had the proper team. Now, my managers were my friends, which was the, for my first mistake. You know, it's like if I had Irving Azoff, I don't care if I like him or not. But right. He, 
Yeah. Or, you know, or these guys like that. But I didn't. So I had no mentorship. And I should have gotten a three-album deal. I only got a one-album deal. Same thing with RCA. I said, why do I always get a one-album deal? <laughs> and, you know, it's some, like, guy that plays a grasshoppers gets a four-album deal. I don't get it. <laughs> so that kind of happened. And then all of a sudden, I went from staying live, playing stadiums around Europe, around the world, to playing. A guy goes, hey, listen, I got – and I was desperate. Nothing was happening. He goes, I got this bar to, for you to play, man. This gig in Florida, I got three gigs in Florida, and I swear to God, Chris, all my life, I come up in Florida, and those days my songs were on reel to reel, singing to the tracks, you know, like you would. Right. So I get up there, and I swear to you, I come pulling in, I go, so where's the gig? It was a dry goods store, like a liquor store with a bar connected to it. I walked in, honest to God, this if the stage was three feet by three feet, it was a lot, no light. Uh, like a bad mic they used to order food with. Oh man! And a tape record, and yeah, and the tape thing. And there's like two drunken cowboys in like Florida, like truck drivers at the thing. I go, who am I singing to? What what am I doing? I'm trying to do these romantic songs from Staying Alive. But then <laughs> I do it. I said these two guys might kill you guys. So I'm driving around in a limo. So the next gig is this. I pull in the uh, oh, oh, oh Florida Key West, right? Okay, I go into the club. It's a huge club. I go, this is great, man. This is awesome. I I go out there, and I'm wearing, like, you know, parachute clothing, you know, stuff like yeah. that. And there's not one girl in the audience. I go, not that I'm a homophobe. I go, it's all, like, guys with crew cuts and big mustaches, like, in tight T-shirts. <laughs> Hundreds. Okay, so I said, hold on, guys. I'll be right back. So I got out of my other clothes and put, like, really baggy clothes on. Like, <laughs> hammer pants. And I came out on stage. And I started singing. And I was nervous as shit because I never played in front of an old male audience. You know, right. Like a biker thing or something. And I got to tell you, man, I think they picked up on it. And they were the best audience ever. They're great. They're, they're great. And I did eventually find the only girl in the club. So I did end up. Okay. She did all right. Yeah. yeah, they did all right. Like an old girl club, nothing happens. So here, this one, so it was good. But it was a great experience. But it's Star Wars, man. It's like mm. you have to be able to have thick skin and come back. Most people would have quit. Most mm. people, I, I can't do the same one. The hip-hopping and the flipping right. success and the failure, they couldn't have done it. They just couldn't do it. So for the soundtrack for Staying Alive, because I think there was some BG songs on it, but the rest were major- majority of, uh, of your material – it, it obviously, I sold millions, right? Yeah, yeah. Did you retain yeah, any we of the gold and platinum publishing? and all that? Any publishing or royalties of that? For of you? course not. <laughs> they screw everybody. No, I, I, I maintain my writers, but the publishing. This is how they get you because, and that's why people are getting their publishing back. Here I am, twenty years in the trenches, nothing happening. Ah, uh, you don't want to give us the publishing? We'll get someone else. I go, right. You son of a bitch. Okay. What can I do? What are you going to do? Right. What am I, what am I going to do? I mean, I'm going to turn down Saturday Night Fever. So, but now, I mean, I get pissed off now as I'm older thinking that they, they sent all their kids to Ivy League schools on my publishing. Yeah, right. Of course. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? But the smart guys like the Eagles, you know, these people kept all their publishing. And that's where the money is. People don't understand that. I mean, Bob Dylan just sold his publishing yeah. for $500 million. Yeah. Think about it. 
Well, but, but like you said, what choice do you have? Either you don't have any choice. Yeah, exactly. It's but, like, hey, Chris, you're going to do this match tonight. You're not going to get paid, but it's big, and you could get your ass kicked. Eh, okay, I'll do it. Because if you don't do it, someone else will. Someone else is going to do it. Someone will have slipped into that spot in two seconds. Before we get back to Frank Stallone, don't forget about the new quarantine video for Love's a Deadly Weapon. Uh, almost 70,000 views in uh, just over two weeks. It's uh, come out of the gate strong. Go check that out. And don't forget, I'm too old for this shit. A heavy metal fairy tale. The documentary I produced about Siren showing that your dreams can come true no matter how old you are. It's a great rock and roll documentary. It's a great uh, uh, human documentary. And that's available on Amazon and iTunes now. Let's talk about the when, when Far From Home becomes a hit because now you're getting a chance to to appear on a lot of these you know, American bandstand and, oh, yeah. and all that sort of thing. So t- t- tell me about some of those stories. That must have been a great time for you. Oh, well, come on. I grew up in Philadelphia with American bandstand. Right. Clark, are you kidding? He was like our God. So when I did the show, even though it's not quite the same show, it was like L.A. It wasn't as cool as it is. Yeah. It? But it was still great. I did all the talk shows. Only show I didn't do was the one I wanted to do was Johnny Carson. But I did uh, Murphy and I did Dinosaur, Jim Neighbors. I did them all. Midnight Special rock concert, all that stuff like that. But uh, The Tonight Show, the two shows I would love to have done in my career is a rap would have been the Ed Sullivan Show and uh, Johnny Carson. But all that stuff was good, and then it ends. You know, it stops. It's like, and it's like, it, it, it's a bit of a culture shock because you, you kind of get used to being treated with respect. You kind of get used to people being like nice to you and all that stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you're a star, right? You're a star, and you're. But you. But the thing is, what was always important to me, Chris. I never got into this for the money. I never mm. did. I mean, I started, like I said, I believe it was a gift from God, and I started because it was what I could do. It was easy for me, and it was you know coming from a broken home. It was actually a form of acceptance around friends and new people. You know, oh God, he can sing, he can play guitar. So kind of got you in the mix, eh? and. Mm. Uh, so there was really no going back. I didn't really have much of an education, as did my brother. So once we were in it, that where am I going to do? I had no skills. I mean, I could have mucked stalls at the you know Budweiser plant for the Clydesdales. I don't know what I could have done, you know, <laughs> clean out hooves and stuff like that. But I mean, I really didn't have any skills other than that, and mm. uh, and it was something I loved to do. I mean, I really enjoyed doing it, and it's. Is it ego gratifying? Yes, but it's really ego gratifying when you see the people that are really enjoying the show. Like mm-hmm. I get asked, well, do you ever get sick of singing Far From Over? I go, not really, because every time I sing it, it's a different experience because it's the first time people have heard it live. Right. So, and that song saved my life. If it wasn't for that song, who knows where the hell I'd be. So I don't do that, and I really hold um, a, a like bad feelings for I see a lot of big acts and they'll go on stage and they won't do any of their hits. Yeah. And I sit there, I go, you know, these people spent all this money. They don't want to hear your new songs because first of all, your new songs like suck. Okay. (laughs) You lost it a few years ago, pal. So, and, and and I find it really disingenuous. Now I've seen Sinatra. I've seen Tony Bennett. I've seen them all stone. They all play their hits. Mm. I went to see Bob Dylan, who I think is one of the greatest songwriters. Didn't play one song. Yeah. Yeah, didn't talk to anybody because back to the audience, couldn't understand a word he said. And I'm going, where's blowing in the wind or, you know, mm-hmm. Highway 61? Nothing. 
And I go, wow. And people paid a lot of money to come see him in this place. And I just found that so jive. If you want to be, Neil Young has pulled that stunt a few times. Yeah. And I really just don't, I don't like that. You go see James Taylor, he plays all his hits. Mm-hmm. You go see Cat Stevens, he plays all his hits. Not Paul Simon, they put all the hits. And I consider them just as artistic as anyone we just mentioned. And I just think it's like a bad thing. I mean, you know, why have your audience go away disappointing saying, oh, gee, why? I thought he was going to do that. I saw it with Christopher Cross. He wouldn't play any of his hits. People are there like, you know, after a while, people are, ride like the wind. Okay. <laughs> Sailing. Sailing. <laughs> okay, we'll get to those later. And all of a sudden, after that, it's like, ah, blow me. That, you know, I mean, they said, at the end of that, they're done. Yeah. You've lost the audience. Now they turn on you. Right. So he's playing right like the wind. They're walking out. There's four people left. Yeah. Get off the stage. You know, I mean, so I'm thinking, I say, don't you get it? They came, they came to hear those songs. It's like, if I didn't do Far From Over and Take You Back. Yeah, you, that's that's what they came to see. Yeah, that, that might be the only song they came to hear. <laughs> just to talk a little bit more about American Bandstand, because I just watched it. It's really cool to see, because tell me kind of how it works. Because everyone's dancing around you, but obviously you're playing to, to the tape. The, the bass player's got the best mustache ever, by the way. Oh, yeah, porn, porn mustache, yeah. He's just rocking. He's not even a bass player. He, the other guy couldn't make it. I don't even know that guy. I go, hey, <laughs> they just had him come st- stand here. Yeah, and I said, "Man, why are you weren't sleeveless? Like no arms? Forget it." <laughs> yeah, but that was the look. I said, "Kind of like twelve-inch arms." You know, so they're like, "Yeah, I mean, it was there." A lot of them were my band. It's like, kind of when you're singing, they're not. I, are they dancing? I don't know. They might have been dancing, but but the whole thing was to meet Dick. Yeah, I mean, I didn't give a shit about anything else. I wanted to meet Dick Clark, and I became friends with him because I did. Uh, I did another show for him, a pilot, mm-hmm. and he wrote me. I have to I'll find out. I have to frame it. He wrote me a great letter. He was a good letter writer. Frank, thank you for helping us. It was called Putting on the Hits. Oh, yeah. And he was, you know, he was the most professional guy you ever met. It's like, even if it was insincere, when you met him, you felt like you knew him forever. You know, he was great. That's a true pro, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like Merv Griffin was like that. You know, certain people. You just meet them. They're just they. They're warm and they're good people, you know. And and Dick was one. Everyone liked Dick. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why he was on the air for sixty years. That's know? right. That's right. Well, Merv too, right? Merv and also too. do all the different yeah. shows as well. Yeah, but very funny though. But doing that show was like an apex. I and now you were saying they didn't recognize me in Rocky One. Well, look at my hair. Like Gino Vanelli. I was like, <laughs> I look like Angela Davis. You know, I might all over them. So what did you do? You mentioned so you, you're you're riding high, and then suddenly it all goes away again. And then how do you rebound and kind of come back again this time? Well, you know what? I started doing a lot of movies then, and I and I'm not proud to say that I, I somewhat abandoned my music career because I never made any money. You know, you, people don't understand. You know, when you you just want to have something to show for your things. Not that like it rules my life, but just. You know, never really had it. You got to pay the bills, yeah. Yeah, pay the bills. I couldn't do things I wanted to do, maybe. So I started doing movies, and they were paying me. And, you know, like I said, I did a lot of lousy ones. But in between, you know, Tombstone, Barfly, Hudson Hawk, uh, Fred Claus, some good ones, you know. Stuff yeah, like yeah. That. yeah. And then all of a sudden I said, you know, screw it, man. I'm getting back into music. And I slowly, like 10, 11 years ago, I slowly put a band together and we've worked out all the nuts and bolts to like a really fine tuned machine. 
and I would never, I'd never go back. And so now I'm not doing any films. So there you go. When you were getting booked on the films, was a lot of it because you're, you're a, a Stallone's brother. Of course, <laughs> they're all bad action movies. You know, like I mean, here you go. Here's the deal: pay Frank twenty thousand or slide twenty million. Right. right, and that's why I named the movie Stallone in big letters, in tiny letters, Frank. That is because I knew these jamokes what they were going to do. They're like, you know, when you see the VHS box on the top, it says Stallone. Right, it's in the rack. People go, oh my god. Sylvester's got a new movie. They lift up in like microscopic words. Frank, that is. <laughs> I knew what the gig was. I mean, I was. That's one thing I wasn't. I wasn't naive and I wasn't stupid as far as I knew. But you know what, Chris? I went in, and did the best job I could in a bad situation. I mean, some of these directors, I think, were brain dead. I mean, mm-hmm. but I went in because that's just how I am, and and tried to do the best job I could. They said, okay, now you're going to do a wheel kick and spin kick. I said, I don't know how to do that shit. What are you talking about? <laughs> so they always have doubles, like on motorcycles. They, they had me as a motocross champion. I've never been on motors. I don't know how to ride a motorcycle. So a guy goes, I said, what am I going to do? He goes, don't worry about it. We have a guy. So I had this guy like doing this incredible stuff, like on this like mountain bike, right? And all of a sudden, they cut to me getting off, taking my helmet off my, <sighs> you know what I mean? And right. the same thing with karate stuff. It's always like a mess that I turn around and go, well, that'll teach you. You know what I mean? So it's just like, yeah, but I was athletic in a way, but I didn't know martial arts and I didn't ride a motorcycle. You know, shooting guns, I know how to do. Ride horses, I know how to do. But so, and, and that's the beauty of, of, of movies. I mean, you can make anyone look somewhat good. Is there, a, is there one that stands out as being the worst movie you're ever in? Oh, I think the worst movie was probably either Rollerblade 7, where I played the Dark Knight. So I had a beard there, and this was the worst movie because the guy goes, well, we don't have a dressing room, so you can use my apartment. And this guy had a ring this deep, his bathtub, like scum. I go, oh, what a idiot. Out of here, right? So they said, okay, we'll put you in a suit of armor. You're the Dark Knight. So the movie was so cheap, they put me in a suit of armor, but it's made of rubber. So it's supposed to be metal. So when I go like this, yes, by night. The thing would crease. You could see like the white seam. Like, it was rubber. And I had the helmet on as I'm talking, the flaps, like when the helmet went, and I. <laughs> they're flipping up. Yeah, they're flipping up. I go, this is so bad. That's actually brilliant. And we're going right. to do an expose on this. Don Jackson was the guy who directed, and I swear to you, he made four or five movies out of this one movie, sequels, Mm -hmm. and starring Frank Stallone and Karen Black. We're in it maybe for not even a second. Right. Yeah, so the return of the – it's just people in the valley, you know, roller skating is so bad. (laughs) That was a really bad one. Savage Harbor was a bad one. Uh, There's more bad ones than good ones, but some of them have little gems because – the thing, Chris, is a lot of it were really famous actors that were shot, that were mm-hmm. people I grew up with. So I remember I did a movie called Savage Harbor where I played the rapist lawyer who's defending someone. <laughs> At the end, I'm laying there dead, and they put a branding iron on my forehead says war, and it's like smoking, like, like right. Sizzler Steakhouse, right? But guess who plays <laughs> the judge in it? Martin Landau. Ah. I was for the movie. Martin Landau, who won the Academy Award for Ed Wood, is the <laughs> judge. And Jerry Van Dyke 
is like some bozo in the movie, and he went on to have a hit TV series coach. So everyone has this and this and this in their career. You know, all of a sudden you're like up top, you know, yeah, he was on Mission Impossible, and then it goes to crap, eh? And then you, you know, then you end up co starring in a movie with me with a guy who had no idea what he was doing. <laughs> Let's talk about a few more things, Frank, that are interesting because you've had such a, like you said, an interesting career. Talk about the boxing match with Geraldo Rivera. Oh, God. Well, what happened with that? I hadn't been in the ring in 12 years, right? So yeah. I was living kind of like, hey, the cool life. You know, I was smoking cigarettes then. You know, I have a few drinks here and there. But I wasn't in boxing shape. I looked okay, but I wasn't in boxing trim. Mm-hmm. You know, you know difference. And there's a difference, yeah. yeah. Big difference. So I walk in to do the Howard Stern show and – as I'm walking in, Geraldo's on the intercom saying that he'll fight any celebrity in the country or any celebrity. So I said, that's nice. You know, that's cool. I had no intention. So Andrew Dice Clay was there and Howard were there. And I was just in there. They go, hey, Frank, did you ever box? They go, yeah, I used to box. He goes, oh, you got to fight Geraldo. I go, I don't want to fight Geraldo. No, no, it'd be great. No, I don't want to fight Geraldo. I'm here to promote my album, not to fight Geraldo. <laughs> And he started breaking my balls. I mean, 5.30 in the morning, waking me up. So, you know, fight Geraldo. I said, why don't you fight Geraldo? I said, I'll tell you what, Howard, if I can bust you right in your big nose, I'll fight Geraldo. <laughs> yeah, give you a little taste. So we ended up doing it. I mean, I I, I had, didn't have that much time to get in shape. And first day in the gym, I had my ribs bruised, which, as you know, as a wrestler, is unbelievably painful. Yeah. Can't move. Yeah, I mean, it's really painful. And nothing you can I do about it. it. You know, pop, top me in the ribs. I would go, Ugh! So I did that. My legs were like lead. I could, I'm trying to run around the UCLA track, and my legs won't move. It's like I'm in quicksand. I said, I'm going to – now my brother's breaking my balls. He's going, hey, you got to let Geraldo beat you up. You know, you're Rocky, you know. I said, I'm not worried about Rocky. I'm worried about me looking like an idiot. <laughs> Of course, it goes back to him. Hey, you make me look bad. You know, it's right. You beat up by a reporter. I said, I said, unbelievable. So anyway, so that's what I'm dealing with. And then I'm getting all this pressure. It's supposed to be just like a stupid, it's supposed to be like a you know, celebrity fight, right? So all of a sudden, I'll never forget this. I'm, I'm in Gleason's gym in New York, right? And I'm sitting there like, you know, but fights the next day, right? But it's got a lot of publicity. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, these two guys come up to me. You like see your face in their suit, like sunglasses. Hey, now listen here. I got a lot of money. You kick this red bastard's ass tomorrow. Because he would, did, was doing an expose on the organized crime. So there's like guys there, like mob guys. They go, so we got a lot, I got like 20 large on you. I go, wait, wait a second. Hold on now. So I'm thinking like I do this stupid thing for Howard Stern. And if he beats me, I get whacked out. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, what was it? So it's, <laughs> in, so it's turned into like Broadway Danny Rose, you know. <laughs> so, but these guys had like the back, black Ray-Bans, hey, got a lot of money over here. And like the ran like suits in the gym, like shiny shark. <laughs> so then I fought Geraldo. I won the fight and we, and we became friends. As you see, he's in the documentary. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, at the end, I'd never, I didn't disrespect him. You know, a lot of people will go, oh, see, I told you I beat your ass. And that's just not my style. So I mm-hmm. didn't. And I think he really liked that because, listen, it's an ego. Sure. For feet, you know, on national TV. But I got to say one thing, man. He showed up. He's not a punk. Far from it. No, he'll fight. 
<laughs> Thank God I won. I could have been like in cement shoes and Hudson Bay. Well, yeah. Your brother would have put you in the cement shoes. I think my brother would have been hit. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, another great thing that, that uh, just to, 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 as we start to wrap up is, is you open a lot of shows for Don Rickles. Oh, God. And what, a, what an amazing, uh, hilarious guy he was. Uh, you know what? It was really fun doing it for him. And I know I had to be on my P's and Q's, and I always am. I mean, I'm never late. I'm always, you know, I do my show. I know, especially in casinos, when you're on, when you're off, right? Right. And so with him, of course, he would abuse me all the time, you know, but that was part of his charm, you know, but he was a nice guy. So I'd open for him. So one time I was doing a show for him. I, Chris, I was so sick and I very rarely get sick, but it was one of those things where every joint in your body hurts and you're just nauseous. I didn't know what it was, probably the flu. Uh, and they had to take me to the gig laying flat in the station wagon like I was a corpse. It was almost wow. like a funeral car, you know? Yeah. I get there, I'm in the back. Usually I have a lot of people in my dressing room talking. I was like, and I went and they go, Frank, five minutes. I go, oh boy. Now I knew if I didn't do that show, I'd never work with them again because they're from that old school, right? Man. So I went on and people go, Frank, that was one of the best shows you ever did. I don't remember doing the show. <laughs> That's how bad I was. But he was a great, he was a, he was a, he was a great guy. You know, he, he used to torture my brother. Oh, yeah? What did he say? My brother's career was not doing good at all. So Sly and Jennifer came to see me at a gig I was doing out here with Don. So here's Don. So my brother is very self-conscious. He's the biggest movie star in the world, but he can't get a movie made. He's like, so Don walks up and goes, Sly, come here. It's over, kid. Okay? <laughs> 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 Don't foul the look. But you know, Don goes, you know, Sly, it's over, kid. Don't worry. <laughs> but he was just that kind of guy. But he, but they don't make them like that anymore. They don't have guys like that. The, these, you know, borscht belt mm -hmm. type comics that work their way up from nothing, that, that nothing deters them. Nothing. I mean, and I say that myself. I said, I've had everything happen to me on stage. I've been electrocuted. I've had shit thrown at me. I've had boyfriends want to kill me because their <laughs> girlfriend's looking at you. I've had everything happen. So nothing really is dissuasive, you know, of doing yeah. work. But I'm very proud of the movie, and I'm very proud of the job everyone's done, you know, like my publicity firm, Rogers Cowan, PMK, Lee, and Branded Films and all that stuff. I mean, you know, I, this is the first time I've had a team in, like, 30 years that knows right. what the hell they're doing. You know what I mean? Before, it's so the gang that couldn't shoot straight. You know what I mean? <laughs> I finally got, you know, guys that are real professional, you know, and, and they do things right. And, and we're getting really good reviews. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i known to get not great reviews. Mm -hmm. I'm known to get, oh, Rocky's brother sucks. Okay, why do you say I suck? Why do you have to go to Rocky's brother? <laughs> So now that the movie's out and, and hopefully we'll be able to start getting back and playing shows again and doing all that great stuff, what, what do you have planned for the future, Frank? Well, I have planned for the future to uh, to get back and do shows. Hopefully this documentary will generate some interest for doing some uh, concerts again. Now is such a great time, which will be when this COVID is over, because there's so many Indian casinos that you could actually yes. make a living do, just doing Indians. There's like 200 of them. So you yeah. can just there and go from every weekend go to one casino to the next and they're very well run you know they got great back line and uh 
why not? I mean, you you know, you come downstairs in an elevator, you go on stage. Yeah, it's a paid show. You don't have to worry about it. Yeah, it's like in the old days. I mean, listen, those, those tours, I mean, I used to talk to Richie Sambora and Duff. Those tours are brutal then. That's yeah. why a lot of them have situations they have now because out of boredom, you know, drugs, they were getting, you know, this, but they're never home. They weren't, you know, when you're out on the road for like a year, I mean, probably didn't wrestlers go out like sometimes 200 oh, yeah. a year? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was crazy back then for sure. You can't have any like kind of normal life. No, you 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 end up being crazy just by the by your atmosphere and by the situation that you're put in. But it was fun. I got to admit, it was a crazy yeah. fun. Yeah, but again, you have no sense of mortality when you're in your twenties, you know. And uh, it's it's good. I'm like again, I'm very very thankful, very blessed. And I'm just loving this. I mean, I hate to see it end, but it, like anything in life, there's a beginning, a middle, and the end. But I don't think this is going to end because it's like my mother and all these people are immortal now. They're forever yeah. on the screen. So this movie will outlive me and everyone else. And then it could be reviewed. Then maybe my kids can sit there and go, hey, we think your father's lousy movie 30 <laughs> years from now. You know, so we get this recycling. I love uh, Sly's quote at the end where he said, if there was a, a plane going down and only one parachute, and you guys were in it together, you know, he'd give you the parachute. I thought it was pretty, pretty sweet. That's good. Yeah. You know what? It, 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 you know, there was a lot of good sentiment in that movie. And uh, I'm re really uh, pleased with it. I mean, a lot of good sentiment. You know, a lot of times as we get older, you know, people, people, people as they get older, get a little more melancholy, a little more sympathetic and stuff like that. Because when you're young, you're building, you know, you're a little arrogant and stuff like that. But it's it's nice. I was very happy because I was expecting some zingers there, you know, some guy. Yeah, no, he was pretty sweet with it, that yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah, he was good. And like we, you know, he beats me up, handcuffs. <laughs> Last question for you: Is there uh, of all the gigs you've played and shows you've played, is there one of them that stands out as being the best show that you've had? One of the most memorable shows that you've had? One of the most memorable shows I've had, I think, when I went to Australia. You know, all of a sudden they discovered Far From Over in Australia in 2015. <laughs> and you would think, seriously, the Beatles were coming. It was these two DJs called Hamish and Andy who were like the biggest disc jockeys in Australia. That When I got there, there was a parade. I mean, I showed the concert sold out in four and a half minutes in Melbourne, Australia at the Forum. I'd never been treated like it was just amazing and it was like the feel this is what i always kind of wanted i never got to do the big stadiums like springsteen and guys like that where you would have to like to fail you'd have to really suck right all they gotta do is go out and play their hits <laughs> that's it a lousy concert that's all on you because there's no excuse for that and and that was the first time i'd ever had well i've had you know fans that love the show and stuff i mean that adulation just unbelievable people with t-shirts and you know frank stallone the frank like here's like you know god i just found one of the stickers frank had <laughs> so they had all that stuff like they made stickers and t-shirts it was like unbelievable <laughs> and, and the australian people are just wonderful people they're yeah wild. it's yeah, a great well, country yeah but they're a lot of fun you know yeah they carry on and get crazy so that probably was 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 one of them, yeah. Well, Frank, it's been great talking to you, man. Like I said, the, the, the documentary is amazing, and uh, I'm glad it puts the spotlight on you 
which you deserve. Well, Chris, thank you very, very much. And uh, thank you for having me on my uh, on your show. Hopefully I can come see one of your shows one of these days when we're back rocking again. Anytime, baby. I'll be in Florida probably at the Hard Rock. So, <laughs> All right, man. I'll see you down there. Thanks, Frank. Bye-bye, mate. 